Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, the twist is that this movie is really fucking bad. This is Lady in the Water. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Duke, so I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Lady in the Water, which we'll unfortunately be talking about today. Oh boy, getting in the water. But before we get into all that, Ian, how are you doing this week? There's a little boy we know by the name of Danny Madigan. Sometimes I feel like that little boy, and I'm just uh, retreating into the world of movies to escape the pain of darkness that haunts my real life. And I'm still waiting for the last action hero to appear and save me from all this. Except in my case, the the movie screen is not a rundown theater full of bums and junkies. It's a VR headset. Ian, I don't want to an alarmist, but I feel like your weekly updates are getting darker and darker as we go on. Is everything okay? Thank you for asking. I use them to throw in a little bit of hyperbole, get out my get out my worries. I'm fine. I'm just, I'm hanging out. I'm making it through life. And I'm glad we have this podcast though, because this is one of the bright spots of my week. Hey, it's one of my bright spots too. I appreciate hearing that, but I just, I had all you can eat sushi for dinner tonight. So I'm feeling great. Oh man. Yeah. If I fall asleep at the desk though, that's all the sushi in my belly taking its toll finally. Did you take it to the limit? Did you feel like you ate all you really could? I feel like I ate all I could comfortably eat. I'm not going to say I couldn't (laughs) have eaten more if it was some kind of dare or a bet, but (laughs) yeah. For all I wanted to eat, I, I feel very satisfied. That's good. You pull back from the dare level. It's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, no, I, I don't need that in my life anymore. I'm not a young <laughs> man. And eating like disgusting quantities of food just because you can, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right anymore. I mean, I don't know if it ever felt right, but there's definitely times when the urge overwhelmed the reason in my brain. But it's nice when you can pull back from the edge and just enjoy it. Speaking of enjoying things. Let's get ready to not enjoy a movie (laughs) that we're going to talk about. But before we get into Lady in the Water, and there is a lot to say, I've got a feeling this one's going to go long because (laughs) quite a bit to cover in this movie. Yeah. Put on your water wings, people, because you will get tired and you might find yourself going under without a life preserver of some sort. Yeah. We're going to talk about the movie. It's our thoughts about the box office problems and our thoughts on movies and stuff, Yeah, as Vic Rand would say. But (laughs) before we get into that, What did you watch this weekend that you thought was interesting or good that you wanted to talk about? I watched a really good movie that a lot of people might have heard of called Minari, Oscar type of movie. What did it win? I forgot. I I didn't even watch the awards. Did it win something big? I think it did. Look at me coming in hot and unprepared. You keep talking and I will... I'll tell people about this movie because it's really good. It's this quiet little indie style movie. It unfolds in these slow scenes and these little quiet character moments. And the characters just rope you in because they're so charming and everything's really well done. You're just delighted to be in this indie film about people and their lives. And just as you're accepting that it's like this quiet movie without a lot of forward momentum, there's actually this kind of climactic plot whips up and it uh fate of the family farm is is in question the fate of the relationships are in question and you go oh it's a big climax and then it uh, retreats to its sort of indie style roots 
with a slightly ambiguous ending. And I thought it was really pleasant and just a great movie. Really fun. And I love Stephen Young and I loved the rest of the cast who I didn't know before, but instantly fell for them. Yeah, I checked it out as soon as it came to streaming and really enjoyed it. It's a bit of a heart-wrenching movie in a lot of ways, but also just a really inspiring story about perseverance and the American dream, if it is obtainable for people. And just for reference, Yoon Yeo-jung, who played the grandmother in the film, did win Best Supporting Actress at the Academy oh, awesome. Awards. Great. She was so good. Yeah. She was like a lightning rod in that movie. Really woke it up as soon as she arrived. But Steven Yeun, yeah, great performance. I mean, all across the board, small cast, modest size cast. I'm sure it was a modest budget as well. But, you know, they set out to do what they wanted to do. They made a movie that was almost universally adored and they they got some serious accolades. Yeah, really neat to see movies that are that good and that unique and special and also to see them be recognized, right? Not to have them just go under the radar. Yeah, I wonder if it came out in another year where there was maybe a more robust selection of films. If it had gotten the attention it got in 2020 because we were so just waiting on any new semi-high profile film release to tide us over because so much got delayed or pushed back. So I'm I'm thankful it came out in the midst of that climate and it maybe got more attention than it would have otherwise. That's a good point. At least those quieter sort of stream centric things can, uh, with a lot of people sitting at home waiting for the next thing to become available to stream, they can really get some attention. Yeah. And I think that probably played a hand in the feedback it received. That's great. I mean, more people get to see it. That's all the better because it's fantastic. Yeah. I watched something. Well, I would say that the movie I watched was good, but it was about something less fantastic than Minari. It was about Woodstock 99. Oh boy called Woodstock 99, Love, Peace, and Rage. It's a, a Ringer documentary. The Ringers get into the movie business now. They made it for HBO Max. Cool. And do you, what do you remember about Woodstock 99? Oh, man. If you remember Woodstock 99 and you weren't there, man. That was not set up. <laughs> that was, uh, that's an old Woodstock joke that I repurposed for the new millennium. I don't remember anything about it. You got to fill me in because I think in 99, I was into classic rocks. So I was way out of sync with the music that was being made at the time. So I probably didn't give Yeah, they didn't try to capitalize on the hippie aura that Woodstock tends to have. They just cast the big acts of the day, which unfortunately were things like Corn, okay. no no shade to Corn, but Limp Biscuit, Kid Rock, DMX, Rage Against <laughs> the Machine, Metallica, right. which none of these bands, some of them are bad. I won't specify which, but they're all kind of aggressive, angry, these real angsty bands. And sure. there was just something in the air that year. Fans felt taken advantage of, overpriced concessions, subpar resources, porter potties were pretty much dead on arrival. They were all overflowing by the end of the first night. Oh, yikes. So it was just this powder keg of anger and misplaced white male aggression. And it turned into a completely like dangerous situation for everyone involved. And it's much darker than I remember. I didn't watch it on pay-per-view. I was like 12 at the time. So a lot of those bands were what I was into. But a friend got either the DVD or the VHS and we, we watched it a lot. And there was no indication on that of a behind the scenes drama. They didn't cut the carnage into the... Uh- <laughs> yeah, no, they were very careful about where they pointed their cameras. But The Ringer had already done a podcast about it called Break Stuff, which was really good, hosted by Stephen Hyden. And he's a talking head in the movie. But they get a lot of the people that perform there. Black Thought from The Roots is a talking head. Jules a talking cool. head. And then they have some Ringer personnels like Wesley Morris are talking heads. Really good stuff. Uh, I recommend it. It's not fun to watch because uh, that weekend got a lot darker than I ever realized. Wow. But it, it shines a light on 
festival culture and like how when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong because there's just so many people. You can overwhelm a security force so quickly. Wow. I see, I thought you were setting up a documentary about a nostalgic look at uh, music of the uh, turn of the millennium. And it's actually a dramatic, horrible. Uh- oh, yeah. No, I was listening to The Big Picture and they had the director on and I'm trying to pull up his name. Garrett Price is his name. He didn't want to format the movie like a documentary or anything like that. He pretty much set it up like a horror movie. Oh, shit. Like bringing you in, showing you the idyllic setting, and then things go really wrong at some point. It just keeps getting worse from there. You see the zombies at the edge of the, the exactly, field. Exactly, yeah. So it, it's a time capsule for sure of that late 90s angsty aggression that was often misplaced and directed in the wrong areas. So like I said, not super fun to revisit, but interesting and important, I think. That sounds like a really interesting thing to watch. I'm going to check it out. But now we have to talk about something that was at the very least interesting to watch. You can't say it wasn't interesting. It was boring, though. <laughs> it was somehow everything. Everything bad yeah. was in this movie. I mean, I, I had trouble. As soon as I watched it, I, I texted you. I'm like, this movie is so broken in so many ways. I don't even know how to approach it, but we're going to try. It's so half-assed in everything it's trying to do. It accomplishes nothing because it tries to accomplish too much, but it doesn't go far enough with any of it. And it just completely fails on every level. So, I mean, let's talk about M. Night Shyamalan as a whole at this point in his career. What was your take on him at this point? 2006, this movie comes out. It was his fifth big wide release. And what what were your opinions on him? I think I was still into him. Not enough to overcome the bad buzz I think that this movie had, but if I recall how the vibes were at the time. But obviously, The Sixth Sense just made a huge impression on the whole country when it came out. Like, it was really a bombshell. And I don't think he's ever come back to that level of quality, but he's done some other fun and and interesting movies. And so, yeah, at that point, where else are we at? We've got uh, Unbreakable out, Mm -hmm. which was felt like a a sleeper to me, at least in my consciousness. I didn't really catch on to that till a little bit later. And then I think I did keep up with The the Village was before this, right? The Village was directly before this. And then there were signs in between Unbreakable and The Village. Oh, right. And I I liked Signs a lot, although it has its corny moments, but I excused it because everyone excuses Signs, if only on the strength of the birthday party scene. Like everyone just goes, oh yeah, the birthday party scene. And we'll say, oh, fucking A. That was the scariest thing. If you, yeah, if you describe that scene to somebody, it doesn't sound scary. I don't, he's so good at building tension at that point. And I really love Signs. I think it's probably still my favorite movie of his. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, I came in generally positive, but yet this movie somehow I just knew to avoid it or it just, it was swept out of the public consciousness as an act of mercy, public safety and charity to get (laughs) it away from people as quickly as possible. Right. I was a big M. Night fan at this point. I did not see Sixth Sense in theaters. I might have been a little young to go catch that one. But then I saw Unbreakable, Signs, The Village, Lady in the Water, and The Happening in theaters before I finally was like, you know what? Enough's enough. Like To some degree, starting with The Village, I had disliked all his movies up to that point. And I said, maybe this doesn't have to be appointment viewing for me anymore. At that point, you're driving a bus with three flat tires and the rims are sparking on the highway. And you're like, should I pull over? And it was an easy choice because the next movie he made after that was The Last Airbender which was based on a property I wasn't familiar with at the time. So I was like, I don't need to go see that. And then the reviews came out and I was like, I definitely don't need to go see that. And then it continued from there for a while, which we can dive more into his career as a whole later on. But yeah, this movie was a response to the backlash of the village, I think is uh, is almost my hypothesis. I'm going to try to formulate more of an idea as we talk about it, about why he did this and where he thought he was going. Oh boy, good luck to us. Yeah. Where was he going? I don't think he knew where he was going. He was going in too many directions at once. Fans of the podcast, 
podcast who have listened to us talk about Meteor Man. Or Blastoids. Yeah, Blastoids. Catch up. If you haven't heard us talk about Meteor Man, this movie gave me major Meteor Man vibes because it's a movie that doesn't know what the fuck it's trying to be. It's got a lot of elements very much for children, and yet it's not a kid's movie. It doesn't look like a kid's movie. doesn't feel like one. It's just a director that got himself stuck halfway between two things and, and it just wrecks him. I'd watch Meteor Man five times again before <laughs> I watch this. For all its faults, we liked Meteor Man decently. And- Meteor Man has a ton of heart and has a ton of warmth and funny moments and just kind of cool period stuff. So yeah, there's a lot more to like in Meteor Man than this. I didn't mean to besmirch Robert Townsend. The good name the- of Robert Townsend. <laughs> all right. So before we start talking about where he thought he was going, we kind of have to talk about why this movie happened and how. Do you want me to go into my spiel? Let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So, in 2004, M. Night Shyamalan released The Village and had his first real setback as a filmmaker. He had been on a huge string of successes with his three prior films being wildly popular with both critics and audiences. The Village was financially successful, quadrupling its $60 million budget and earning $257 million worldwide. Reviews, however, were largely negative at the time, criticizing the film's twist ending as predictable. Surprise, the thumbs are down. While there has been a call to reevaluate The Village, with some calling it an effective allegory for the Iraq War, this was the first time a widely released Shyamalan film had been received with anything but widespread acclaim. It would not be the last. Hey, you gotta say spoilers. His next film, titled Lady in the Water, would be marketed as a fairy tale or bedtime story from the mostly horror-focused director, and was indeed based on a bedtime story he'd come up with to tell his children about a sea nymph or narf Narf. named Story who claims she has come from a place called the Blue World to inspire a writer whose ideas can save humanity. The film was meant to be produced by Touchstone Pictures and released by Walt Disney Studios. However, the studio's lukewarm reception to the concept caused Shyamalan to go elsewhere with his movie. Warner Brothers would eventually end up financing the film, and filming was done in Levittown, Pennsylvania between August 22nd and October 21st, 2015. The film's apartment complex and pool were built specifically for this movie, causing the budget to balloon to $70 million despite taking place in a single location. A single pile of trash. Released on July 21st, 2006, the film received overwhelmingly negative reviews and was ignored by audiences, earning $18.2 million and coming in third at the U.S. box office in its opening weekend. It would eventually earn $72 million worldwide and would go on to be placed on several worst of 2006 and even worst of the decade lists, earning itself a place in history as a massive box office bomb. M. Night, you done fucked up. You done you, fucked up, buddy. I don't usually address directors directly, but... What more is there to say? You done fucked up. I mean, <laughs> and there is some absolutely bananas dealings that went on behind the scenes prior to and during the production of this movie that we'll touch on that maybe show he was getting a little out of touch. Maybe there was a little hubris at play here, a little bit of ego involved. I know with a movie director, hard to believe. Yeah. They're famously humble and level-headed people, but he took it to another level around this time in his career. Yeah. I am a person who is generous and always tries to give people the benefit of the doubt, ascribes the most positive spin on possible mode. But the more I learn about this movie, the more I think he went mad with power or something. He thought he was smarter than he was. And it really sort of brings down your opinion of him because you go and watch and I rewatched The Sixth Sense this week to prep for this. And I'm like, there's so much good stuff. There's hints of where his weaknesses are in that movie, but they're sort of buried because the meat of it is so much fun. Yeah, and, he's uh, never been a good writer. 
and he's never been a good dialogue writer specifically. But this movie retroactively makes you go back at his good movies and think like, was it really good? Am I misremembering something? But no, no, he has good movies. I assure you, like they are out there. He's not a complete hack or complete fraud. He has some filmmaking skills, but he just didn't put any of them to good use in this movie. Yeah. So if we accept that premise that he's actually clever enough and creative enough to make good movies, then you go, okay, so what was on his mind during this that caused him to just make so many bad decisions and just overlook so much stuff that he he should have understood about filmmaking and storytelling? My strongest theory that I'll probably keep coming back to is the kids movie theory, right? Is this a kids movie? Did he think he was making a kids movie? There's certainly a lot of clues that he at least would call this a family movie for some reason. He has a character describe it as a family movie in the meta self-referential portion of the film, which is also a weird thing he threw in there. Yeah, but uh, it's still rated PG-13 and it's it's a relatively hard PG-13 at that. It's got some scary scenes. It's got some violence. It's got some kind of adult content. There's like a weirdly sexual relationship you know, or verging on sexual relationship between our protagonist, Cleveland Heap, which that name alone should give you an idea of where you're at with this movie. Cleveland Heap of fucking bullshit. That's an R-rated name right there. And then Story, which that's another problem I have with this movie. And I'll shout out the ways in which I feel this way as they come up. But it feels like a bunch of stuff that was written in a story outline and they were like, come back and refine this later. And then they never did. Yeah, a lot of pieces don't connect. Or not even not connecting, just like the the way things are named, the way characters are named or portrayed, it feels so lazy. And they were like, well, we're just trying to get the basic beats of the story down. (laughs) We can come back and fix it later. And then they were like, no, this is the shooting script. It's all done. Yeah, like undeveloped idea. Like, okay, if you have a mythical fantasy fairy tale character and her name is Story, you go, oh, this is a metaphor. And she somehow represents Story. And somehow like storytelling is the magic that she brings that will change the world. But no, she just happened to be called Story. I mean, do you think that he was somehow ascribing magical powers to his profession as a storyteller? And that's where he was going to go with this? I mean, not to spoil anything he literally casts himself as a writer whose ideas will save humanity (laughs) if he's just allowed to write them. I mean, how much more fucking egotistical can you get? That moment is so overwhelmingly hubristic that that I can't even register. Like, I can't even hate him for that because it's too weird. But then again, that character is not writing a fantasy story. That character is writing a, a manifesto, a political manifesto with dangerous ideas in it. Yeah, we don't know what's in this fucking thing. All we know is the <laughs> ideas are dangerous. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. We can touch on all this in the story synopsis. So why don't you bring us into that? Because I feel like we're getting amped up to talk about some of this nonsense. All right, here's how the story goes. Cleveland Heap, played by Paul Giamatti, is the superintendent of a big apartment building. Someone has been using the pool after hours, and when Heap investigates, he meets a mysterious woman named Story, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Story is naked, and she has a scratch on her leg, but she won't reveal much about herself except that she is a creature from the blue world called a narf. Then Heap and Story get menaced by a grassy wolf creature called a scrunt, and Heap decides he better figure out what's going on. One tenant named Young Soon has heard of a narf, and she gets her mom to tell Heap some old family bedtime stories about them. Heap is a sweet guy, so he promises Story he'll help her fulfill her mission so she can return to her home. Man, go fuck yourself. So much of this, so much of this I hate uh, so, so passionately. But so let's look at some of the terms used in this fantasy story. It starts with this opening animation that is just a giant exposition dump. We're talking like Dune levels 
of I'm going to fucking talk at you and you better be taking notes or you're not going to have any idea what the fuck is going on. With some weird, scritchy, scratchy cave painting, stick figures. Um, Distractingly bad animation. <laughs> yeah. And then it shows Shyamalan's weakness for metaphor and symbolism because it's really heavy handed. He's like, the water people gave man ideas of the future and he followed them and everything was great. And then he got into owning stuff. Now everything sucks. Yeah. It's this really simplistic dump, which is, is that okay for a fairy tale to be like that? Probably you could pull it off with a simplistic story like that. But they're throwing a lot of terms at you, like narf and scrunt and blue world. And this is what I'm talking about. Like none of these feel fleshed out. Like narf is the first fucking thing you could come up with to describe this like nymph that's supposed to be this muse. That's what fucking Pinky says. I'm Pinky in the brain. <laughs> nerf. It is not. <laughs> Where it brings up. Yeah. like It's, it's not evocative. There's no majesty to it. There's, it doesn't sound fantastical. Like it's like something a stupid mouse says when he yeah, gets in she's trouble. A beautiful, mysterious water creature. And these sound like the shit he came up with off the top of his head when he was telling a bedtime story, which is what he hints at the whole time where this came from. And that's as far as he took it. He's like, Narf is perfect because that's what I said that night to my daughter when she was two and she thought it was good. So you guys are going to think it's great. Right. A bedtime story is as good as anything for inspiration, but that doesn't mean you could just cut and print exactly what you said to your (laughs) kids when you're sleep deprived and just trying to get them to fall asleep and release it to a mass audience and have it be received warmly. That's that's the half-assedness. Well, this is only the beginning. Yeah, I know. Let's talk about Paul Giamatti and his uh, stutter. I fucking hate when a stutter is used as a plot point in a movie and it's portrayed by an actor who does not himself have a stutter. I mean, it feels exploitative. It feels almost mean-spirited and it doesn't add anything. It's a very, it's it's a stale kind of thing and it doesn't make the character sympathetic. It makes you feel bad because you get irritated at the character and then like, oh, I'm losing my cool over a guy with a stutter. That sucks. I don't like myself for doing that. And then you go, oh, but he's fake. He's not real. It just, it takes you out of things unless it's done really well. I mean, this is not the King's speech, folks. This is the very cheesy, crude use of a stutter. And every time he does it, in almost any movie or TV show where an actor who does not have an actual stutter starts stuttering, it's like capital A acting. It's their way of being like, look at all the work I'm doing. I'm trying really hard to act. And that just takes you out of the moment. And Giamatti is a likable actor and you can see him trying to make the most of this role. He doesn't know what movie he's in. In his first scene, he goes really big and broad, like it is a kid's movie because he's doing this entertaining squashing a bug for the benefit of these five sisters and their dad who live in one of his apartments. He plays that. That could have been like, I could have flipped on Nickelodeon and seen this big Giamatti face mugging for the camera. That's played (laughs) completely like a child comedy, but- Like we said, this movie, it doesn't like how could Giamatti know what movie he's in when Shyamalan doesn't know what movie he's making? Right. You're setting your actors up for failure. So that's my main problem with his character, but not my only problem with his character. There's plenty more (laughs) to go around and we'll get into it. But no apartment building in Philadelphia looks like this. What's the point of setting it in Philadelphia if you're not going to honor any of that city's rich architectural history? It looks like a cheesy motel outside like Galveston or something. That's a good description of it. Yeah, it's totally weird. It's got the main part of it is this huge, brutalist, concrete apartment block. These towering five by five sections. You can see 75 apartments facing the pool. And there's this little sort of fantasy cottage that is the pool house where Cleveland Heap lives, which is weird. But you're like, okay, well, maybe this is a fairy tale movie. have to go with the idea that this place is already enchanted 
and strange and special because it's the place that the mystical elders chose for this event to go down. His little um, like bungalow thing, by the way, just super charming. I would love to spend a weekend there. It's cute. It's a little studio apartment. Kind of bathroom is right out there in the living room. It's not the nicest, but it's really cute on the outside. You're right. The bathroom is, is kind of an issue. <laughs> I didn't think of that. But, you know, if you brought in like a nice contractor, you could have that place looking pretty spiffy. You could do it up. Yeah. You could Airbnb it for like $400 a night, probably. But also we've both lived in apartments throughout our lives, right? Yeah. Are you that intimately involved with your neighbors that you just hang out in your hallway and talk to them all throughout the day? I'm definitely not. I don't hang out and talk to anybody, but it's part of the sort of larger than life, weird fantasy world, which contrasts with the look of the film because it has a sort of a gritty look. And then it has these fantasy characters like nobody is real. None of these tenants are grounded. They're all over the top and absurd in their own ways. Let's talk about some of those over the top and absurd neighbors in this movie. Like Freddie Rodriguez as Reggie, a bodybuilder who's only building up one side of his body. When you ask him why, it's like an experiment. Yes. Science project. Science project. But he's not very sciencey. He's like a bro dude who's just into pumping iron and telling people about it. Freddie Rodriguez, good actor. What is he doing? Again, it's one of those weird, it's like a setup for a thing that should pay off, right? If you go, this is a weird fairy tale movie. And we have a strong man who's only strong on one side of his body. He's going to do something really interesting with his one giant arm. But of course, no. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> no, he becomes a more important character later on, which I guess I was a little grateful for because I was like, why am I spending so much time on this fucking one yeah. side bodybuilder? But when he <laughs> comes back into the story later, it has nothing to do with his one strong side. It's completely brushed aside. So. It's it's random. Like everything else, it's undeveloped, like you said, first draft. And then we have guys like Jared Harris talking about the King's Speech and Jeffrey Wright. Is Jared Harris in the King's Speech? I don't know. I think I might know him from The Crown. I knew him from Mad Men mostly. Okay. So this was like probably one of his earlier American roles because everything I've seen him in, I think was post this. Okay. But again, fantastic actor, very highly regarded. Not in The King's Speech. I got my British actors mixed up. Yeah, that's normal. That happens. But then Jeffrey Wright too, completely overqualified for his role in this movie. Even then, even in 2006, he was too qualified for this. And it's interesting because he gets to at least be the voice of reason. For some reason, Shyamalan threw in one character who actually points out how stupid everyone's being a couple times, but then he just falls right back into being stupid with everyone else. But I don't know. Did that make it any better for him? Probably not. No, like telling the audience that you're being an idiot doesn't make it any more endearing. Not really. In fact, sometimes it's more enraging because we could have avoided all this if you knew what you were doing this whole time. This is a story about people who don't know what they're doing and they don't know why they're doing it and neither does the audience. And so therefore nobody in the audience gives a shit what's going on because why would we? Right. So let's talk about story a little bit. Bryce Dallas Howard's character who emerges from the water buck-ass naked and Paul Giamatti is very taken aback by this as one would be. But then she puts on his button-down shirt which does not cover much. And they end up spending the night like cuddling. It's again, really weird. He goes in the, he thinks she's drowning in the pool because he doesn't know that she's a narf yet. And so he gets fucking word. He goes on, he falls on the deck. He goes under, he does a Bugs Bunny, I'm going under where he goes under the water and he sticks his hand up and he doesn't quite do the one, two, three, wave bye-bye thing as he goes under, but it evokes that kind of silly, the way people drown in a lighthearted, silly way. And then he wakes up on his bed, she's on his couch and he's like, oh shit, naked lady in my house. And he's like, you can't be here. I'm old fashioned that way. I can't have a naked woman in my house at this hour. And then she's like, oh, but I'm scared. And then he shrugs. And the next thing you know, they wake up and she's cradled in his arms and his hands are all over her bare body 
no matter how Shyamalan tries to film this, it's inherently creepy. (laughs) There's probably a 30 year age difference between them. And he might be going for like a father daughter relationship between the two of them, but she's not a girl. She's a lady. She's right there in the title. Exactly. This ain't girl in the water, guys. This is a lady, despite the fact he says, oh my God, she's just a kid, but she's not a kid. No, she's yeah, mid twenties. And that inherently makes this kind of weird and creepy. And her innocence doesn't help the matter either. Like her kind of unfamiliarity with social norms doesn't excuse his behavior. Yeah. And the movie doesn't reckon with that. Like there's other movies, I don't know, Splash or so. There's movies where fantasy characters of women come into the real world and it throws people for a tizzy and they have to deal with it. In this movie, they don't deal with, they like, they show a lot of skin or they show enough skin to be titillating, but not enough to, I don't know. It seemed like PG skin to me. I didn't even feel like Shyamalan was pushing it because he thought he was making a family film. So he, he couldn't talk about the sexual ramifications of the naked woman. So they just leave it there. They just go, oh yeah, she's naked. And you can imagine what would happen in a situation like this, but we don't have time to show it. It's a lot of plot points to do. Right. I mean, everything in this movie is surface level. They're not willing to grapple with the ramifications of anything they present on screen. They just want to show some images that they hope will be captivating and move along without a second thought. Yeah. Should we introduce Mr. Farber before we get out of this section of the movie? Yeah, I guess Kind of a key character, even though you could throw him entirely out of this movie and it would be a better movie and nothing else would change. Yeah, but then M. Night would not get his shots in at film criticism. Right. This is where your theory of, oh, this is him getting his revenge for the way critics treated the village, right? Because he introduces this movie critic, comes back from the West Coast where the cool movie critics are, has to move to Philadelphia in shame because he's down on his luck in his career, right? For the local paper, I think it's exactly- The local newspaper, yeah. They don't bother to come up with a fake name. This is another thing that feels like a first draft. Like, just say you came here to work for like the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yeah, throw a little name or a nickname of a paper or something. Act like you're an industry insider or at least a person who lives in the real world. Philadelphia is not a small city. It probably has more than one local paper. Oh, yeah. I'm writing for The Courier. You ever heard of it? Or something. I don't know. Something to make it feel more grounded in reality. Nobody (laughs) talks like that. So, yeah, this guy is set up to be a bad guy. And as we'll get to, kind of a fall guy by the end of the movie, because Shyamalan wants to thrash him about and victimize him. But you know what? If you look at what happens, he's the victim in this. He's coming Mm -hmm. to his new apartment and he needs the superintendent to let him into his apartment on his first day. His arms are loaded down with bags and he drags him around the place, goes, oh, stand here, talk to this idiot bodybuilder, bro, for 20 minutes while I go talk to the pool guy. He's like, just take me upstairs and open my damn door. And right. he, he like drags him around. You can do this shit on your own time. He drags the guy around and then the movie treats him like Farber is the asshole. Well, because he's a film critic and he doesn't even seem like he likes movies. Oh no, people didn't <laughs> like my Pioneer Village movie. Get the fuck out of here. He has these crusty, like condescending opinions about movies, but actually when you watch it twice, like I did to subject myself to more pain, he never volunteered. He's not a guy who goes around, hey, I'm a movie critic. You know what I think about movies? Every time he's totally content to stay quiet in his apartment and Heap is always busting in on him and going, hey, what do you think about movies? How do movies work? Tell me more about your opinions about movies. He's dragging it out of him. If this happened uh, in a movie, like what would happen next? What character would, and this poor guy is just, yeah, he's giving him maybe a little bit of like terse answers, but you just fucking knocked on his door. (laughs) He's been here for one day. You've disturbed him like five times. Yeah. And his apartment's like legitimately sucks. He's got these stupid party bros next door that are always making noise and smoking when there's no smoking in the apartment. Like he has real gripes and yet he's treated like an asshole for being mildly annoying. 
paranoid. Yeah. I guess the worst thing you could say about him is like he doesn't observe film from a symbolic point of view. He, t- he sends to take everything at the surface level, which is hilarious as a form of criticism coming from Shyamalan, because <laughs> that's what people have said about his movies. <laughs> Whatever deeper meaning he's trying to get at, he, he just can't convey. And everything just seems to be happening in the movie, but with no greater purpose. Yeah, he can't actually make symbolism work. He can just throw out a symbol and, oh, yeah, take it as a symbol. It means something to you, right? Yeah. Right. That's like the most he can do. And he scurries off. So, he, yeah, he really does try to set Farber up as the bad guy, played wonderfully by Bob Balaban, but it's a pretty thankless job he has in this movie. It's clearly just M. Night trying to take a shit on film criticism because somebody was mean to him. And it was weak. I think the critics won this round. Yeah, that almost never works. I feel like it's such a fallback of the spurned filmmaker, and it always makes them look petty and shitty. Like when in yeah. Godzilla, the 98 Godzilla, Roland Emmerich put Mayor Ebert in oh, as shit. a character, and he made him like always <laughs> eating candy and being like a real baby about everything. Oh my God. It's like, what do you think is going to make him review your films more favorably? No, like it's so nakedly just vindictive because your feelings got hurt. Yeah. All right. You want to move on to the next section of the movie? Sure. There's lots more movie. What else happens? So much, but yet so little. It turns out Story's mission is to find a certain important writer. So Heap asks around different tenants until he realizes a guy named Vic has been working on a book. Heap brings Vic over to meet Story and Vic feels a little tingle. So apparently Story's magic worked. Mission complete. But when Story tries to step outside again to go home, the scrunt attacks and scratches her leg and she flees into the building. Story holds up with Vic and his sister while Heap dives down into a cave underneath the pool to retrieve some magical narf mud. The mud saves Story's life from the scrunt's poison. Story then tells Vic the ideas in his book will inspire a boy who will grow up to change the world. I'm sorry you had to read those lines. They don't make any God, sense when you condense it down. No. <laughs> wait a minute. The guy is, di- wait, there's a cave underneath the pool and all of a sudden he's diving. Why is he diving? Why is he diving down into it? And wait, there's mud in the, there's magic mud in the cave. Oh boy. Right. They, they haven't established that the scrunt is only going to attack Story. He seems to attack anybody. Sometimes. So why is it safer for Heap to go out there and dive for the mud when he's a man who can only hold his breath for, I don't know, nine minutes, apparently. But like Story could have gone in there, probably snatched the thing and been back in no time with without an issue. What do you even say about all that? It's so weird. He's underwater for so long. <laughs> so they tell you in an early scene that he wasn't always a apartment manager. He used to be a doctor and he had a family, but they left out something else. I think he must have been a pearl diver before he right? was a doctor because he got them lungs, man. He is so chill under the water. He is locked in a muddy cave behind a weird twisted trap door that closes and he does so fucking chill. He does not flinch when he realizes the door is jammed. He just immediately grabs a fountain pen out of the collection of knickknacks that Story has collected, unscrews it, sucks the air out of a crystal glass that she also likes to collect those for some reason, thankfully. For him. A cool little trick. I don't know if that holds up scientifically, but it was neat. It was a but good still, trick. Yeah, he That was like three minutes into his dive. And then he has another like three minutes after that. And he has to do it in a flash. There's no time when you're underwater to do the whole journey of discovery to figure out how to solve your problem. He just somehow knew. And then right. he grabs a butter knife, a silver plated butter knife. There's another one of the knickknacks she had stolen. And that's what he needed to open. The butter knife opened the stuck door hatch that he just, why didn't he just open it with his hands? The butter right. Knife a butter knife nothing. is no stronger than your finger. And <laughs> I'm confused. Did they explain why Story steals things? Because her whole thing the narf god i can't believe i'm saying these fucking words on a podcast (laughs) people listen to but the narfs are like oh man was obsessed with ownership and possessions and that's where he went wrong my solution is to steal a bunch of shit and keep it for myself oh my god i didn't even put that together (laughs) her fun little thing is becoming 
wow, there was another little bit of symbolism in there that Shyamalan just chucked at us and said, figure it out. I don't think he even intended that. Just well, it, it, that- co- doesn't, it contradicts her original message and what the NARFs stand for, right? She's hoarding things. She is the emissary of the purity, the antithesis of the human need to own things. But he needed a gimmick that would get her to occasionally pop out of the pool. And so it's, oh yeah, she likes to steal shit that people leave by the pool. <laughs> this is your hero. So that's how she's going to get discovered. Petty larceny is her, how she kills her time. So she's got silverware and glassware and knickknacks and mud, magic mud. Thank God she had the magic mud. Saved her life. She was dying. This movie's so fucking stupid. Because scrunts are poisonous, as well as being wolves that will tear you apart. If they scratch your leg, which is all they're ever capable of doing to her, they'll poison you. I just picture him doing like lines in his Pennsylvania house. Oh yeah, and then when they scratch you, you get poisoned. But also there's these (laughs) monkeys and they live in the trees, but they're not really monkeys. They're mostly like trees, but they're monkeys too. And they're good, but also they seem scary. And they're evil. Yeah, they're good. They're the arbiters of the law in the mystical world. ACAB, baby. But yeah, they're fuckers. The story is they killed their parents the moment they were born. So don't fuck with them. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that? Like, why do we need that little bit of information? I'm not glad we have it. And I wish I didn't know anything about this movie. Let's talk about the cookbook. Oh, yeah. We can finally get off that stupid NARF mythology nonsense and into the bigger nonsense. Mr. Vic Ran. The biggest nonsense. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking Vic Ran. The cookbook. First of all, stupid name for a book that's about you know your thoughts on all the cultural problems and thoughts on leaders and stuff. Yeah. Why is it called the cookbook? It's just so you can have two minutes where you think it's not Vic. Right. You can share in heaps confusion when he sees that it's called the cookbook. And he's like, oh, never mind. And then that's immediately resolved. What Shyamalan thinks are interesting plot points in this movie are a guy with a list of names and it's like, oh, go find the writer. Okay, I'm going to find the writer. And it's like, oh no, you picked the wrong writer. Oh, I picked the wrong writer. Oh, that was interesting. And so how do you make it more interesting? Wealth, have a writer, and you meet him, and he's I'm working on a book, and he's like, Oh no, it's a cookbook. Oh no, it's not. A minute later, <laughs> it's like, What is the story supposed to do for you? This movie could have been like 42 minutes long without all the fake outs we didn't need, just yeah. misdirections. It's just fake outs on meaningless stuff. Nobody's doing anything hard, taking a shot at something, and like, Oh no, that wasn't right, and try this. But yeah, so we meet Vic Ran. I thought Vic was a fake out because you obviously you start thinking everything's a fake out in this movie and you meet him and you're like, this can't be the real writer. First of all, it was way too fast. Like they meet him really quick. Second of all, the guy seems like a dope. He describes his book, which is supposed to change the world as like, it's just my thoughts on all the culture problems and thoughts on leaders and stuff. Like, oh, this guy's not much of a thinker. How's he going (laughs) to save the world? And then they double fake you out. She meets him. He feels the tingle. He gets out of there. And meanwhile, Story has just read Heap's diary, right? Which he had hidden, which tells the story of his tragic family story that preceded his current situation. And she's like, you are a beautiful writer. Your words are wonderful. I'm like, oh, yeah. Of course, Vic's not the writer. He's not the writer. (laughs) It's, It's Heap because Heap, first of all, is the main character in the movie. And second of all, she's telling him he's a wonderful writer and it's like a a secret side of his. I love that he wrote beautifully about his family and children being murdered. Like what beautiful words you use to describe what must have been immeasurable pain. Why does his backstory have to be that? That's too far. That's like the Punisher. His whole family. Yeah. That's where you know it's Shyamalan stuff because he loves absentee husbands and dads, mm-hmm. right? That goes all the way. I mean, certainly goes back. The village to really sense. doubled down on that. All those people started the village because they had all had family members be killed or otherwise oh, brutalized right. and they had to get away from society. And then signs Shyamalan kills Mel Gibson's wife in signs. 
Right. Was it Mel Gibson's neglect that caused his wife to die? I thought she just got cancer or no, something. No, Shyamalan fucking ran her over. He smashed her into a tree. Oh, Shyamalan himself yeah. ran her over. I was thinking you were saying, I forgot that. No, no, his character. He didn't metaphorically fucking... do it as the writer of the script. He did it as the character. Oh, no, shit, he pinned her right. between a Ford Explorer and a fucking tree. I think Cherry Jones's character described it as the truck's the only thing holding her all together. Oh my so, God. Yeah, he loves graphically killing family members. Yeah. But also, he's not much of an actor, and this is by far the biggest role he's ever written for himself in a movie, and it does not work. He's not convincing as this guy. He gave himself terrible dialogue, like the one we keep going back to, and, and he's no good at reading them either. So he's wooden. Like, yeah, he's just very monotone. He, he can't really play emotion. I understand it's like his little thing that he's in all his movies, but he should be one of the weird like dudes sitting in the room smoking cigarettes or whatever. Right. That's like a role suited to his acting talents. Yeah. Not Jared Harris. Why can't we change those around? Jeffrey Wright should be, should have played Vic and M. Night should have played nobody because even Jeffrey Wright's role is too big for him. Jeffrey Wright just could have given you a look just by his face. You could have gone, oh, wow, there's something going on me in that guy's eyes. I can see that's the guy. He's figured it's something out and it's going to change the world. Yeah, Shyamalan just looks like a dope in this movie. Like, you think <laughs> it's a joke, but you're like, no, he thinks he's cool. He's playing it totally straight. Yeah, there's no irony in his performance at all. He thinks Vic is humanity's savior. I mean, how do you just not see what you're doing when you cast yourself in that. And then down the road, he finds out he's going to die. He literally martyrs himself for his art. Just yeah. so over the top. Because some people didn't like his Pioneer Village movie. He had to do all this. The man must have the thinnest skin I've ever heard of. I guess so. But like, there's not even any joy in that. If he was really a thin-skinned, angry director, you could imagine getting some joy out of seeing the rage that he throws into this movie. But he's so just numb on screen. Right. I don't know. It's like he's trying to sabotage his own story. What else from this section did you want to go over? Story going back in the shower, it gets back to the undeveloped ideas and the undeveloped sexuality. She keeps getting scratched by the damn grass wolf. That seems to be the only reason she's really hurt. But they keep sending her back into the shower because it's a convenient plot device. Like you could imagine there's other movies where mystical creatures come and you go, oh, you, the narf can't stay out of the water too long. She'll die if she's doesn't get back to the water. Doesn't she need to get back to the water? Like that would be a plot point for this movie. But that's right. not it. She goes in the shower because she's just, she feels more comfortable there, but she's not dying or so anything. So she's sitting in the shower, butt naked, and there's eight or nine other residents that think they have some role to play. Either they're the guild or the writer or the healer or the guardian. And they're all just hanging out just staring at her while she's in the shower. Maybe she doesn't feel uncomfortable, but they all should have. <laughs> kind of weird. They kept a PG. They kept putting the shirt back on her when they needed to, or they put a towel on her later on. They didn't actually right. really make it too weird or challenging. They just made it awkward. That's as far as he would push it into the awkward zone. I would argue it goes past awkward into weird and challenging. <laughs> okay. For, for a bedtime story, a children's movie. <laughs> which ostensibly this was supposed to be. Yeah, that's true. It's it's way too awkward for actual family content. You want to take us home on this one? But wait till you hear how this thing ends. So Heap finds out that he needs to act like a child in front of Young Soon's mom in order to get the mom to tell him the rest of the Narf legend. But thankfully that works. And he finds out about a list of characters who must be hanging around for the Narf to be able to safely return home. He rounds up all the tenants he thinks match the description, and they arrange to throw a big party as a distraction while the legendary giant eagle comes to pick up Story and take her home. But it turns out he picked all the wrong people. So the plan goes bad. The scrunt once again attacks Story and scratches her leg one more time, and this time she's almost dead. But everyone talks it out, and they figure out which of the tenants is supposed to really do what, and then they round up all the right people. Turns out he's the healer, so he healed 
heel story, and the others help defend her, and the giant eagle comes, and it takes her home. What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) None of this makes any sense. It's so fucking stupid. We're going to spend another two hours just on the third act. God, this part of the movie drives me fucking insane. Everything from him acting like a baby on the couch with Mrs. Choi. I don't. This is degrading to Cleveland Heap, Paul Giamatti, and Mrs. Choi. Like everyone involved should feel bad and they should probably sue Shyamalan for some kind of damages. <laughs> to her credit as an actress, she does the best because all she does is give reaction looks to that scene when he's degrading himself. She maintains a, a slight a bit of dignity through all this. But yes, to people who haven't seen this movie, what does that mean? What do you mean Heap is acting like a baby? Well, it's a bedtime story and mom has already told a lot of it, but she's like, I can only tell so much of a bedtime story to a man, but if there were a child around, maybe I would tell more of the story. So he takes off his shoes. She puts out some milk and cookies for him. He sits on the couch. He pulls up his feet. He takes a big drink of the milk. It's all over his mustache and he starts kicking his foot like he's a bit what the fuck is he doing rolling around on the couch he's acting like a fucking saint bernard he's not (laughs) acting like a baby he's not acting like a human baby he's acting like a puppy so he takes a drink of the milk and he's about to wipe off the milk because it gets on his mustache and then young soon looks at him like oh don't no you better act more juvenile and he like leaves it there and so there's some milk on his mustache and then they cut back to him and every time they cut back the milk is wider and thicker and it's on more of his mustache he hasn't picked up the glass again because he's lying back on the couch kicking his legs and and twisting around like an infant All, all his jumping around on the couch is made the milk just like slowly drip out of his nose <laughs> onto his mustache somehow. I don't know. We, get, we we breezed over Young Soon. I feel like it just needs to be stated. This actress is from LA. Mm-hmm. She was born in America. She speaks with no discernible accent. I don't know what possessed her or the director to do that accent throughout this movie. Really? It feels offensive. Yeah. And I just could not let this movie go without pointing that out. It's really over the top. I mean, the stereotypes that they throw in there are really cliched and ham-handed. Yes, this movie has a weird relationship to race. Yeah. And Shyamalan had been criticized in the past for not having diverse casts. Was this his attempt to make good on that? Or is he actively trying to be like, oh, you wanted diversity in my cast? Here you go, assholes. Take all these stereotypes. I don't know. Do you think he even thought of that or just thought this would be cool? I don't know. Young Soon particularly feels like she's being played for laughs. Yeah, almost all the tenants are comedy characters. She's one of them. And yes, she's overly broadly drawn, just the worst cliched things. She's the student, but she's in the club and her mom wants her to marry a dentist and just all these tidbits thrown out to keep it totally ungrounded and unrealistic and borderline offensive at all times. Maybe not even borderline. It might just be (laughs) offensive. But anyway, this scene is just a disaster. I don't know how else to describe it. Words don't do it justice. And then this party that they're throwing, it's just so inexplicable. First of all, this is a massive party. There's got to be like five, 600 people at this party. How did they set this up in such short notice? There's a DJ, there's a band, there's refreshments. They spread the word around this giant complex and everyone got it and was going to attend that same day. It stretches any (laughs) kind of credibility this movie might have had. It goes out the window in the third act. It's wacky, but I guess we could say that there's been a lot of wackiness. We we should be slightly inured to it at this point, but it's as dumb as anything else in the movie. And the party is just weird because it doesn't make sense either. The plan- They thought it would be a distraction for the scrunt and they could sneak story out 
right? But they, Is that but what they were going for? But there's like contradictory parts to it because at the same time, they're like, oh, but the eagle won't come if anyone's around. So, so let's get 600 people outside. And then we'll put a band in the rec room. And at the right time, we will tell everyone that there's a band in the rec room. And of course, all 600 people at a party will flood into the rec room, leaving a totally empty pool deck. Or to hear shitty Bob Dylan covers, right? Isn't <laughs> he playing like Maggie's this, Farm? Oh my God, that band just like, the band was yeah. not fun. I think the band was a real band, right? Or were there actors playing? Yeah, was, no, there is. it is a real band. I declined to learn their name. Yeah, I'd like to say I forgot it, but I don't think I ever knew it. I didn't not bother to look at it twice, but they're annoying. And then like everything else dumb in this movie, as they're ready to execute the plan, they realize that they don't actually have a good way to tell the band to start or to tell people to go watch the band because the band closed the door to the rec room. And although you can see them through the glass doors, their walkie-talkie battery died because they were fucking with it too much. And they simply have no way to alert anybody of what their next step is. And in the midst of that, the scrunt attacks because of course he does. And he puts some more scratches on her leg. Even though he dragged her bodily through the bushes deep into the tall weeds behind the apartment. Why is this grass not better manicured, by the way? It's on the <laughs> property. Yeah, we could. We should have started Heap there. He needs to invest in a fucking lawnmower. <laughs> yeah, part of the weirdness is this big, ultra-modern concrete block apartment building has this weird little pool house in the back where the super lives. And around the pool house is some tall grass and then some taller grass and then some corn or something and then a forest <laughs> in the middle of Philly. I don't know if Philadelphia, but that just doesn't. Philadelphia is renowned for its green spaces. And no, of course not. That's completely fictional. There's no building near Philadelphia that looks like this. I guarantee you. And what is this purpose? Why he could have eaten her a thousand times over at this point. Yeah. He's literally dragged her deep into the grass way out of where anyone could see him. And yet she's not killed and they don't have to fight to get her back. A heap just sees it and he kind of runs over there. And then the scrunt runs away because now the scrunt is not dangerous. The rules for the scrunt change. Right. He could totally eat Paul Giamatti and Bryce Dallas Howard with minimal problem. Yeah, he could swipe him dead in a, with one paw and then go back to eating the girl. But yeah, it it's just another way that like, what are these creatures? What are their powers? What do they do? How do they act? And it's just not really ever. Nobody ever sat down and sketched out. Why are these things after her? What do they do? Figure out what you do. You had all summer to think of it. Because it's inconsistent from one scene to the other. Yeah, the rules change. The thing busts through the window, through the glass of this door, and snaps his horrific jaws right in her face. And you go, oh, this is a really menacing thing. If it gets any closer to her, it will fucking eat her. It will rip her throat out in a second. And yet it gets to her three times in this movie. And all it does is put some mild scratches on her legs, which don't even bleed. They're just like scabbed up immediately by the time you see them. There's not even any blood coming out. It is as dangerous as my coffee tape. <laughs> which sometimes in the night, if I'm going to like get a snack, I bump up against and get a little cut on my leg. So can we come back to Farber? Yeah, let's talk about Farber and, and the, the end guy here. that we love to hate and love. This is the part where he takes the fall. I was rooting. I think Farber's my favorite character. I think I'm rooting for him. If every other character died, I'd be like, all right, Farber's the hero. So Farber, who the film thinks is a villain, is once again put upon. He wakes him from a nap and drags some thoughts out of him. You gotta tell me how movies work and plots and characters. And this is how they come up with this list of people that then do the whole party thing we talked about. What do you even call this? Like a set of roles that that Mrs. Choi has told. It's like a a Dungeons and Dragons party. You've got your rogue, your mage. There's a healer. There's a symbolist who interprets the symbols. So you gotta round up all these people. So he has no idea how to do this. He goes, he bothers Farber 
wakes him up, says, you got to tell me some things. He goes, okay, I don't know. In movies, uh, if there was a symbol guy, he'd be like this. And he goes, oh, I know who that must be. And so he does a couple of those. So that's how they round this group up. It's the wrong group. Heap has fucked up his job of rounding up the people. But when it goes bad, they blame Farber. They go, oh, Farber fucked it up. What kind of horrible man would be so arrogant and put this poor girl's life in jeopardy by telling me his wrong analysis of movies, which he didn't even know why I was asking him that. He had no knowledge of the real world implications this would have. Yeah, he asked him to spout off about movie cliches and he did. And he's like, that guy fucked us. That guy tried to kill Story with his bullshit theories about movies. What a he, filthy piece of shit. <laughs> they're so to, mad at him. And they're like, he, I mean, they don't say it, but basically the movie says he deserves to die. And then the movie kills him. Gets eaten by a scrunt. So scrunts do eat people. They're not just there to scratch your little legs. Well, only movie critics. Right. Yeah. And he gives this long speech about if this was a family movie in which no other character had been killed and there was no profanity or nudity throughout, then I would run away. And of course, he's saying nothing bad's going to happen to me because that's how movies work yeah. and then he gets eaten so that seems to be m night saying haha my movies aren't predictable it is so bad so yeah farber's gone now and like we got to think of new people that fit all these roles we got to think outside the box here outside the cereal box maybe oh hey. that's how they find the people because there's a puzzle on the box and a kid a boy a figures kid, it out boy genius who like <sighs> reads me. symbolism in cereal boxes like all these characters we know nothing about and these roles we're not familiar with. So we don't really know what qualifies you for one of them. We we have no way to make an informed opinion about what's going on at this point. We just have to trust whatever M. Night tells us. Yeah. And we don't give a shit. He <laughs> thinks he's doing all this setup and payoff. He's like, I showed you the old cranky guy who doesn't talk much. And now it pays off because he becomes the guy who witnesses the ceremony. And you're like, oh, how fun. <laughs> I didn't know there had to be a guy that witnesses the ceremony. You're just making up roles. I didn't know anything about. He finally gets to witness a ceremony. I was hoping the guy that I didn't know or care about would get to witness a ceremony in the third act. And yeah, he sure does. Oh boy, this is satisfying. Five stars. I was down on it until that guy didn't know witnessed the ceremony. And then I was like, yeah, this fucking rules. And that's the limit of this mythology that Shyamalan has dreamed up for this movie. Nobody does anything hard or interesting. It's just you need to pick the right people and they need to come to the right room at this time and stand there. What it's is like anybody- going to the DMV. Did you bring the right form? <laughs> oh, you didn't? All right. I guess you're not the healer then. Come back tomorrow with the right people or this movie's never going to end. If this movie didn't end, I would end it myself. It's mind-blowingly bad. I don't know what it's else to say crazy. about it. And then there's all these other things that are meaningless. We're going through some of the heavy hitter meaningless parts, which are actually the core of the movie, because you can't get to the end of the movie if you don't solve these stupid problems that don't mean anything. But then right. other meaningless shit happens. Story's hair changes from red to blonde, and it doesn't mean poison, anything. poison, I think. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's the poison because she keeps getting scratched, but then he heals her in the end and she stays this beautiful, glorious blonde. It's like they're reveling in her blonde hair. So the blonde wasn't the sick color. The blonde was just something that happened to her for no reason. If she got scratched one more time, she would have had like Ric Flair, stark white, silver <laughs> hair. It just progressively gets lighter and lighter. And then when they finally get everyone the correct roles, we got to talk about the monkeys. What are the monkey names? I think they have a it's stupid name too. Tartutic. I forgot how they Tartutic. pronounced it in the movie because they say it once or twice and they make a point of it's a thing. There's three of them, but they have a singular name because that's like a cool thing that happens in stories. They are the Tartutic. We are Legion and all that. Yeah. yeah. And they're little monkey groups. And then you think they jump out and they're going to like, they're going to banish the scrunt or cast a spell 
They literally just stomp him out. They just beat the shit out of him. Like you see him <laughs> punching so him in the ribs and it's making these thuds. It's, whoa, they're fucking beating the crap out of this wolf. They literally look like Jimmy and Tommy and Goodfellas when they're beating up Billy Bats in the bar, just like stomping them out. Just stomping them. These dudes, it was so unintentionally hilarious. That's the first time I smiled during this movie and I was legitimately (laughs) cracking up at these dudes just kicking the dog in the stomach. Over and over. I thought somebody was going to pull like a folding chair out and just hit him in the head or some shit. (laughs) This was the only time I enjoyed this movie. Was that like 10 seconds? Like we said, the things that Shyamalan does well, actually the the beating the shit out of grass wolves. Let's not put that fully in that category, but he has a sense for visuals. He loves to do his thing, which is show scary things in reflection, or sometimes he shows mm-hmm. it through the water in this movie. And those Partially are actually cool. or something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's actually like a cool way to show fantasy characters. He kind of leans on it too much. There's some gratuitous reflections in the laundry room dryer for no good reason. Well, he couldn't show them fully because he spent all his budget building an apartment complex for no reason. <laughs> when yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of empty apartment buildings near Philadelphia they could have used just as easily. But it wouldn't have looked like the cove. It had to look like the cove. Oh, yeah, the cove. The, the place is called the cove. And they keep flashing back in the middle of other stuff happening. They keep flashing back to the sign at the front of the building that says the cove. Like it means something and it doesn't mean shit. What does it mean no. that the place is called the cove? Nothing. No, it, it means absolutely nothing. I mean, maybe it means something to Shyamalan, but we can't know that because to us it just seems like it's pointless. Like so much of this movie. Just throwing stuff in. And then pretty much the movie just ends at this point. (laughs) The eagle comes, like it comes, picks up story, flies away. And then like, all right. Before they do that, he realizes, I think as the third act is winding up real fast, I think he realizes, wait a minute, these characters, I have my two heroes, Heap and Story, and there's no resistance. They're just rolling downhill towards the end. So he comes up with these fake dilemmas for both of them. So Heap the whole time in the movie since the beginning has heard about the guardian and he thinks he's the guardian and he's like oh gotta do guardian things and he goes out seemingly no hesitation to face down the scrunt earlier on in the movie and it and it fails then he dives in the pool because he's a tough guardian dude and like he does all this stuff no hesitation and then at the end they go oh we picked the roles wrong sorry dude you're the healer and he's like i can't be the healer i can't do this i can't and it's like what good giamatti by the way oh that was me but it's oh it had the like manic. I actually, when I get excited, I, I sound a little bit like Giamatti. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> but like, why? That was just totally fake drama. You can do it, dude. You were doing much harder stuff than being the healer, which you have to only just stand there for five seconds. With your hand on a naked lady's thigh or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and it'll all be fine. Yeah, t- one more time. He's face down a scrunt with just a broom handle, but <laughs> exactly. now all of a sudden, Why is he freaking hard. out? And then they made Story freak out too. Near the end, they go, oh, by the oh, way- so fucking dumb. You, you're not just a narf, <laughs> you're a madam narf. Like as if that classed up the stupid name he gave the narfs. You're a madam narf. It's like, oh no, I can't be a madam narf. That's too much responsibility. Is she, is she pimping the other narfs? Like, <laughs> term madam has all other connotations, but yeah, like, we didn't know what a madam narf was. And just telling us that she is one means absolutely nothing to me. It means less than nothing to me. I hate it because it's making this movie longer. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you have to be a leader. Oh, no, I don't want to be a leader. I just want to do everything else I did in this movie, which is, who knows what that was. Steal shit. I just want to be a petty (laughs) criminal. (laughs) want to be a cat burglar. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't affect the way, the outcome is exactly the same outcome they were trying to get to from the first beat of the movie. So it has no meaning. Yeah, it's literally just stalling to pad out the runtime, I guess. This movie's not overly long. So maybe if they didn't have all these fake outs, it would have felt too short. But yeah, speaking of ahead. too short, this episode is definitely not going to be too short. No. 
One more gripe. As we get to the end of the movie, the giant eagle comes and the whole group that's finally been assembled correctly is standing there. Except for one lady, the delightful Mrs. Choi, who's had a bigger role to play in getting her home than just about anybody in this movie. She knew 100% of the legend that was written. She knew knew actually a frustrating and comical amount of information about the story (laughs) that she was like, oh yeah, I think I remember a story about that. And then she just lists everything very specifically. So much information that they had to split it up. had to go back to her three to four times to even pull it all out of her in multiple scenes. She made the whole thing happen and then she doesn't get to be there for the happy ending. She's just a persona non grata at the end. And they're gonna be like, no, nothing cool happened. Don't worry about it, Mrs. Choice. Go back <laughs> to your uh, go back to your shitty little apartment. Yeah, bake some more cookies and we'll play baby again. And the eagle thing, the whole time I was like, is the eagle like a metaphor? <laughs> Does it mean something else? Like maybe heap is the eagle and no, like a fucking eagle just flies out of nowhere and picks her up. And it's like, all right, let's go home. Drops yeah. her off at Mount Doom, I guess. I don't know what the eagle does after that. Yeah. I hope she still has the ring. I don't care. It was, yeah. <laughs> and it's dumb. And it's just like, this is more bedtime story off the top of his head kind of shit. Because she's a water creature in the first place. And you get this feeling like she's been itching to go back to the water. She certainly spends all her time in the shower that she can. And then right. she goes to the sky for a while. Yeah. Maybe it's supposed to symbolize like she's dying. I don't know. She served her purpose, but no, that doesn't really make sense. They should have showed the eagle fly out over the ocean and drop her in. <laughs> From like 200 feet up. <laughs> that would have been a just cool. Hits the water like in a belly flop. <laughs> Back you go, little fishy. That movie, would have, it would have gone up half a star. It might look at that. <laughs> yeah. So it would have been half a star. Would have been my rating. Worth it. That was Lady in the Water. It's the plot of Lady in the Water. Yeah. Was, uh, it's really bad, you guys. I, it's it, almost funny bad. Yeah, it sometimes veers into so bad it's good territory. I don't know if I can in good conscience recommend it, though, even with that in mind. It's just so silly. We had some fun with it here, but we're also like, well, I'm worn out from trying to have fun with it. And your mileage may vary. Be careful. If you decide to crack this one open, you may have to bail out. It's not that fun in real life. No. And so let's get into the making of this movie a little bit, because it's kind of an interesting story, what happened here. Yeah. Shyamalan had worked with Disney exclusively on his big movies, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable Signs, The Village. He brought them this script. They were not excited about it as they had been about his previous movies, but they were like, you know what? You've made us a lot of money. We'll still make your movie. But he was basically like, no, you don't love it enough. So you don't get to make it now. And he like ran away. There's actually a story in a book. There was a book written about the making of this movie and it's called The Man Who Heard Voices or How M. Night Shyamalan Risked His Career on a Fairy Tale. Now he asked for this book to be written when he started the production of this movie because he probably thought this would be another movie that was uh, a very smooth production and then it would get released and make a boatload of money and it would be like a victory lap for him to have this book out about it, right? Yeah, cool book showing what a badass he is. But as the production of this movie got rockier and rockier, the book turned into a little bit of a hit job. (laughs) So I have not had a chance to read it yet. I did order it after watching this movie because I was like, yeah, I'll read a book that talks about how shitty he is. Because fuck him for making me watch this movie. I can't <laughs> like, wait for you to get it. When you get the book, we're going to hook up a, a Zoom call. I'm going to kick off my shoes, curl up on the couch, drink some milk, and have you read me a bedtime story from this book. My mustache is more robust, so maybe I should be the one <laughs> listening, and I'll, I'll have okay. it mail to your house instead. We can, maybe we can take turns, because everyone deserves to be infantilized now and then. No, it's not true. No, <laughs> Unless that's what you're into. You don't have to do that. But So there's a story in this book about how this went down specifically, and one of the reasons why... Shyamalan decided to part with Disney was because Nina Jacobson, who was Disney's president of development at the time, took her son to a party instead of staying home and reading 
the script for Lady in the Water. Shyamalan had it personally couriered to her, and I guess he expected her to just cancel all her plans and curl up on the couch and read his shitty script. And when she didn't, he was like, they have no vision and they don't care about me because she has a life outside of fucking catering to M. Night Shyamalan's whims and shitty fucking scripts. So, sounds like a real. That's the thing. Like they never said we won't make this movie. They were just like, we don't really get it. It's not as accessible as some of your other stuff, but we have faith in you and we'll help you get it made. But yeah, they just I weren't think, enthusiastic enough for him. I think to be fair, there was some negotiation about marketing budget or how much effort they were promising to dedicate to it. Is that part of the story? I think I heard that on a podcast. That might be. I I can't speak to it yet. Maybe there's some numbers in the book and I I can clarify at a later date. Just to try to, again, as I am overly generous to M. Night Shyamalan and everyone else, give him the benefit of the doubt. I can't believe. It may (laughs) not have just been his fit of peak that night when she went to the kid's birthday party. Yeah, I'll have to read how it goes down in the book because this is all paraphrased. But hopefully it's not just as petty as this makes it sound because that's pretty disappointing for a filmmaker I occasionally admire. Yeah. But now that we've been through this whole thing and and everyone who's seen this, you're willing to believe quite a bit about this guy because you just saw this movie that he wrote and was really proud of and acted in and acted like a weird freak and seemed real dopey. And it's like, at this point, I would believe anything you told me about the guy. Right. And then another little bit of uh, fun trivia, fun in quotes is... The apartment complex and pool, like I said, were built specifically for this movie, and it was built inside a Jacobson Logistics warehouse in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Now, Shyamalan demanded it be within 45 minutes of his home, and it was 43 minutes exactly. He timed himself driving to and from set, so he refused to stay in a hotel or travel somewhere where it maybe would have made more sense for this movie to be set. No, he made them build a apartment complex that didn't really make sense for Pennsylvania right outside his house. I mean, he's known to be a massive homer for the city of Philadelphia and everything he does is set there and in the sixth sense, there's in the school like, where are we kids? Oh, we're in Philadelphia. Did you know it was the capital of the country for a while? He's just constantly pumping up Philly, but he's also a homebody apparently. Like he just doesn't want to drive very far away from this little spot. Yeah, when you're on top of the filmmaking world, I guess you can make demands like that. But as your star starts to fade, you might have to make some compromises. So we often like to examine maybe why a movie lost money. The buzz around this movie was really bad. It obviously had a lot of negative buzz going into it. Nobody really knew what it was about, what its tone was. I also think the title's a little weak. What do you think? It has a little bit of character, but it's it's kind of flat, like the story of the movie itself. There's a lady, there's a water, she's in it, but where's the drama in that? Right. You think maybe if it had a better title, it might have done better. We yeah. often postulate about this. Titles can make a big difference. Do you think maybe we could take a shot at coming up with some better ones? Yeah. Why don't we try? Let's see. Uh, All right. What do you got for me? I think they should have called this movie Lady in the Lobby trying to get her ticket refunded because that's the only real drama that this movie generated the whole time. Yeah, I'm sure there was plenty of walkouts here, so that would have been foreshadowing on the filmmaker's part. (laughs) I have one kind of similar to that. I had Lady in the Wawa, as this takes place (laughs) right outside Philadelphia. I think a fun little side story would have been a story wanders off and finds herself hungry late at night. Where can you go for a delicious hoagie at one in the morning around Philadelphia? The bars are close early. You find Wawa. What's more Pennsylvania than that, right? No, I mean, uh, the hoagies, you got to get them from Wawa. (laughs) Got to get the hoagies. (laughs) Little narf of Easttown action going on there. All right. What else you got? We know everyone loved The Sixth Sense, but they should have called this movie The Zero Sense because that's what this movie makes. Oh, snap. Fucking got him. I like that. Yeah. This movie does make zero sense on so many levels. Uh, and people always say so many levels and don't really mean it, but I mean it. There's a billion ways this movie There's doesn't make so sense. There's so many. 
What about scrunt for the water people? Like hunt for the wilder people? Because there's a scrunt and he's there for the water person. <laughs> he is there the for narf. her. Yes. So. At least it's not as static as Lady and the water because she's sitting there. This guy, he's ready to go after her. Yeah. That would have given some more context to what's going on in the movie. So I thought maybe they should have gotten creative, marketed this as a prequel to Unbreakable and called it Unwatchable. Very good. <laughs> this movie is absolutely unwatchable. Maybe this could have been one of those uh, sneaky sequels like Split and Glassware to Unbreakable. You could have tied it into that whole universe. <laughs> yeah. See, I had a different idea for how this ties into another cinematic universe. I think this could have been a prequel to Jurassic World in which Bryce Dallas Howard plays a high-powered executive right. called Blue Jurassic World. Oh. Because she comes from the blue world. The blue world. But her character gets snatched up by the eagle and maybe he drops her off on an island near Costa Rica? Yeah. Isla Nublar, maybe? I think Shyamalan's whole problem was that he was so busy thinking about how he could make this movie, he didn't think about whether he should. I get that reference. <laughs> Thank you. This movie actually was referenced once in a, another M. Night movie since we brought up Expanded Universes in The Visit, which is actually a really good little scary comedy. I don't know what you'd call it. It toes the line of horror comedy really well. But the Nana tells a story about creatures that live in the water and come from a blue planet in that movie. So, Oh, cool. He's not trying to like erase this from his history. He's still including it in some he of his other He still has works. some love for it. Yeah, I think I saw part of that movie and I was too scared. So It's where, it's creepy. Yeah, it's a good one. That was where he got back on the horse. I guess we'll get into what happened to him after this, but he went down, 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 and that was where he started to climb back out of the hole. Yeah, I mean, we're running long, so let me run through this really quick, but let's sure. see where he went from here. So this was definitely the beginning of a commercial and critical slump for old M. Night. He would follow this up with The Happening, which actually did make money, sadly, because I would much rather talk about that movie because that movie is so bad it's good. It's much more fun to make fun of. But that was his worst reviewed film until his next one, <laughs> The Last Airbender, which got a whopping 5% on Rotten Tomatoes wow. and barely doubled its $150 million production budget. That is by far the biggest budget he ever had to work with. Yeah, people are so mad at that movie. Like, I have no attachment to the original source material, and I haven't right. seen that movie, so I, I don't want to get into that whole thing, but people are real mad about that. Yeah, I have not seen The Last Airbender or Avatar, the series it's based on. I'm excited to watch it with my son, though. It seems to be a really well-regarded children's show. Yeah, people and, say it's uh, one series. of the best ever. So I'm excited to watch it eventually, and then maybe when I'm done, I'll watch the movie just to get mad again Yeah, M. Night. But, so he would follow up The Last Airbender with After Earth. That was the Will Smith and Jaden Smith project which got 11% on Rotten Tomatoes and a box office flop. So sadly, we will have to talk about that at some point. And he was kind of persona non grata at this point. He had to fund The Visit himself. That was his next movie. It only cost $5 million to make. It's filmed in the found footage style, which is very economical. But he had to basically use his house as collateral to get the money to pay for that movie. That's wild. It went on to make just under $100 million, though. So it was a big success financially compared to the budget and got much better reviews. It got 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that was his first hit in a while. That movie alone, if you just looked at it by itself, that's one of those horror movie success stories. And it's interesting that this guy who was who was the next Spielberg, he was the next Hitchcock, he was the darling of the movie industry, had fallen so far that he had to turn himself back into a scrappy horror filmmaker, dig up his own money, make a low-budget movie. And it worked, and he actually got back on the horse, and he had one of those big money makers. Yeah, and very telling, the marketing for that movie, all his posters up until this point were like, M. Night Shyamalan presents, like, he got top billing in most of his movies, yeah. as opposed to the big stars he got to act in them. The Visit was much more cagey about who was really behind it. Oh, okay. I think he knew that there was a, a bias against him at this point and was trying to fly under the radar a little. 
That's an interesting wrinkle for a guy whose hubris seems unbounded to know no self-regard. Bounds, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. That actually shows that he had to pull back and somehow he knew he had to. Right. And then that was followed by Split, which is a movie I really like. Another step in the right direction. Got 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. And again, I bring up Rotten Tomatoes not because I think it's the end all be all, but it's just a quick way to reference how critics felt about a movie. But it also made almost $300 million. It made $279 million with only a $9 million budget. So another big success. He seems to be back on the horse, but then maybe getting a little bit ahead of himself, feeling himself a little too much. Once again, he makes glass movie. I really dislike. Oh, really? Uh, Okay. 37% on Rotten Tomatoes. Still a financial success though. Made 247 million with a $20 million budget. And the jury's out on old. We don't know where it's going to end up. People seem to be liking it. Okay. It's got 51% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. It's, it's yeah. made $25.4 million as of this recording against an $18 million budget. Obviously, the movie theater landscape's a little different right now. Yeah, it's going to be very hard to tell on a comparative basis with his other major releases how this one performs. But I think just the fact that it opened, it did number one in its first weekend, you said, right? It, it beat some other big... Beat that, Snake Eyes, which... Oh, yeah. Uh, not right. to toot my own horn, but I predicted would be a massive bomb when we were doing our RIPD episode. And I take yeah. no pleasure in saying I was correct. That is on tape. You predicted that would go right into the Blast Zone shortlist or yeah. hopefully on the long list, maybe. Yeah, not shortlist. Get around to it that wanna, quick. I don't want to watch another schwanky. But I think this proved that he re-earned the mystique, right? He opened old. Whether it actually ends up being able to be profitable, he made the movie open and it was based on the old Shyamalan mystique. You do a commercial with some freaky images and an high concept that everyone can grasp and talk about. And it worked for him. The beach makes you old. I mean, that's a one-line yeah. <laughs> One line stinger. And Lord knows Twitter is having its fun. With oh, yeah. The beach makes you old. Shout out to Soul Nate. He's done about 25 of those tweets, but they're all great. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> I mean, this didn't really uh, affect anybody else's career. M. Night Shyamalan movies seem maybe because he puts himself at the forefront of them so much and the marketing and everything. Like when they fail, they really only seem to affect him and not That's his true. actors. Like Bryce Dallas Howard went on to have a great career. She's in almost every major franchise you could think of. She's got sure. some part in. Giamatti's been obviously super prolific. He always has been getting lots of critical acclaim in his roles, both on TV and in the movies. Nobody came out of this with a stink on them except for M. Night himself. Yeah, that's interesting. You see that as a badge of his his incredible ego. But in, in that other sense, it does a favor for his actors. Like, uh, it's on him. That was his piece of shit. Right. He's so autonomous with the way he makes movies. If it doesn't work, people blame him solely. And that gives actors a certain amount of comfort taking on maybe a riskier role that they wouldn't otherwise because they're like, well, I'm playing with house money at that point. If it makes money and it gets accolades, it looks good. If it doesn't, then people blame him. So that was Lady in the Water. I don't have any major final thoughts. I mean, you listened to us talk about this movie. If you can't figure out why it bombed, I don't know what to tell you. This movie is bug shit crazy and I hate it. So that's my final thought. How's that? I'm totally in agreement with that. Let me bring something positive to the final thoughts. Go back and watch Sixth Sense. Anybody, if you're thinking about doing the Shyamalan, I mean, I know, John, you said you're more of a science dude, which also maybe go watch that. I rewatched Sixth Sense and it does so much cool stuff that you wouldn't even believe the director of this movie was capable of doing. It hits you, but not only with the suspense and the scariness and the twists, which are great, it gives you 
two emotional payoffs, huge emotional payoffs in this movie. I think that's why people love this movie. Like you go, oh, it's, it was a gimmick. Shyamalan was the twist guy. The Sixth Sense pays off twice. Both of its main characters have these incredibly painful, tear-jerking, cathartic moments at the end of the film that leave you crying and feeling like you just went through something amazing. And you're like, who was that guy who made that movie? That wasn't Lady in the Water, Shyamalan. That was somebody else. I don't even understand it. But do yourself a favor. If you're going to refresh on Shyamalan before you go check out old, watch something else. Yeah, anything but this or The Happening or even Glass. I'm not a big fan of. But yeah, he's obviously got skills as a filmmaker. He just chose to stymie them in this period of his career for whatever reason. He stumbled over every one of his worst stumbling blocks. It was just like like a cartoon rakes in the grass moment for him. And he stepped on every one of them. All right. Well, that was Lady in the Water. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Give us a five-star review if you're having a good time listening. Follow us on Twitter, Pod. Send us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. With any suggestions or questions you have, we'll be happy to hear them and get back to you. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll see you guys next week in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.